So, Marika, do tell. How do you take your tea? Um, I guess it depends on the tea. I mm-hmm. like it. Okay, well, actually, okay. So the quintessential cup of tea for me, which my sister and I refer to as mummy tea, because this is how our mother has tea. Okay, that's so cute. Yes. And it's like, it is, in my opinion, the perfect cup of tea. So it's preferably Earl Grey and Mm -hmm. steeped to like a medium steep level, like just Mm -hmm. like a nice kind of like amber color. And then a splash of either cream, but also like oat milk, I think Mm. works really well, like especially with like an Earl Grey. Yeah. And then if I'm feeling really fancy, I'll put honey in, but usually I'm like happy without it. Hmm. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it's great. That's so cute that it's like mummy tea because when I think about like what my cup of tea is, is exactly how my mom makes it. Uh I remember sitting around the table after dinner and she would have her cup of tea and I'd have one with her and I'd have it the exact same way. My mom likes, I think it's Earl Grey or like English breakfast or like a black tea of sorts. It's the like Twillings, Twilings, whatever that brand is. You can just like get the master pack at Costco and did not steep it very much. And then Mm. a little sugar. But also I'm really into just sugar at the moment, by the way, just on a total side note. But that's it. That's the end of my tea. Oh, sugar in general or just sugar in tea? Just sugar in my tea. Like I've been Mm. having it without milk. I see. Apparently everyone is doing their tea wrong and that we're not steeping it long enough. Like it's like a black tea is supposed to be steeped for five minutes. Yeah, I feel like I've heard that before, but I don't want that. So everyone else is wrong. Sorry. I agree. And I do also do the thing that you're not supposed to do, which is like swirl it around or like squish the bag so that it gets like more because that's how you get all the tannins. Sorry. I kind of like the tannins in the tea though. Like I don't mind that. I don't mind it, but that's like why I want milk. Like I don't like it on its Mm. own because I like like the milk to round it out. This is kind of why I like don't enjoy cream in my tea. Like when you said cream there, I was like, oh, weird. Because it gives Mm. it that kind of like I don't want to say oily because it's not oily, but there's like a textural kind of like element to it that isn't found if you just have milk. And it's, mm. I find it very like, mm. oh no, I like the, te- I like it when it's like thick. Oh, it's not That's why I... like the way that the mouth feel is like, mm-hmm. it's so strange. Anyways, you know what I'm talking about. I do. And I like it. That's why I put okay. eggnog in my tea, especially. Eggnog in tea is delicious, actually. Yeah, that's, so good. that's good. Oof. Damn. Anyways. Welcome to Pantry Stables, the podcast where we dish on your favorite foods. Hello, I'm Emily. Hello, I'm Marika. And today we're talking not about tea, but we're talking about the ceremony surrounding tea. So if you want to know where tea comes from or stuff about the leaves or how long you're actually supposed to steep. Too bad. Leave now. No, just kidding. Please stay. No, yeah, we're, this is, I mean, this is supposed to be a mini episode, but judging on the length of my notes. It's not going to be mini because neither of us know how to shut up. Um, No, so this is our first in our kind of like, I want to say mini series, but again, probably just lengthy series of um, episodes surrounding kind of manners, etiquette, and how we eat food. So it's not necessarily just on the food and the history of that food or dish, but around the cultural practices of consuming it. Yeah. That's what we're doing today. All right, on this cultural voyage, we start not in Japan, as everyone likes to think that tea is from, but in China, which we all know is where tea is from. In China, chai, chai, yeah, C-H-A-Y-I, 
is the art of drinking tea. So that is where we're starting. Uh, tea is offered as a sign of respect. It is to apologize, to celebrate a wedding, to show gratitude. These are the kind of situations surrounding the consumption of it in a more formalized manner, not oh. just like making a cuppa, which we will get to. <laughs> um, so according to the Chinese legend, tea was discovered in 2727 BCE when the emperor Shen Nung was boiling water under a tea tree and some leaves fell into the pot. The emperor fell in love with the taste and color and tea became a common drink in Chinese culture. So we think that is the the legend in the myth, <laughs> yes, but we think yes. that tea consumption started in Southern China as early as the Han period. Uh, it would have been drunk for medicinal benefits exclusively at this point. So lots of, you know, the tinctures, the potions, the herbs and spices and all that stuff that we consumed and hoped for the best with, uh, that was tea. What date are we looking at here with the Han? I knew you were going to ask and I knew I didn't look it up. Hang on. (laughs) (sighs) I always want to know. I have no concept of time. I know. Like you're going to tell me the date. I'll still be like, I don't know. What what does that mean? So 206 BCE. Oh, this is very easy. 206 BCE to 220 AD. So when you think of like traditional Western timeframes, what was happening in Rome around then was like Mm -hmm. the empire was not... It wasn't an empire. It was at that point a republic still. But the Republic of Rome was like doing things, taking names, kicking ass. Uh, And then around the turn of the century, that's when Augustus came into place. And then they started Mm. the actual empire. Uh, He died in 14 CE, I think. Babbles would Mm. kill me if she knew that I just asked you that. I don't know the answer. So the Han Dynasty kind of relates to that sort of time period as well. So that's kind of what we're having in the Western half of the world. And Mm -hmm. in China, we have tea being consumed and discovered and doing all those good things. Or just popularized because discovery was clearly very much earlier. Yeah, Um, cool. Like I said, in this period, it's for medicinal benefits. Later, we are seeing it being widely consumed just as a beverage for enjoyment. Oftentimes, I think this is the main thing to remember with the popularization of tea is that one of the, like, the predominant reason that it becomes so popular is because it's a safe way of drinking water. Like, we want to heat our water, so if other shit gets added into it, that's great too. But boiled water was happening because it's safe. Otherwise, Uh you are drinking not safe water. And people realized really, really fast that they could not be doing that. Do you think that maybe it would have come first? It's like they're making, like, they're boiling the water to have this, like plant in it to make like a plant infusion and then because they're not like dying because that's what they're drinking that they then think that the plant is medicinal and not attributing it to the fact that like they're boiling water and therefore don't have bacteria or is it kind of like simultaneous that is such a great question and i am not 100 percent sure what the like the source material would say on that i would uh-huh. also hazard a guess that the time when that like that realization came into play was a time when there wasn't a lot of written record. So I think it would be really Uh hard to prove either because it's, it's obviously not 200 BCE, which is a time when people are very much writing things down. They're telling stories, like all of that stuff is happening. Um, But anytime before it, it's like, they're just doing stuff. What were they drinking? Cause again, like beers and that sort of stuff was another way that they were drinking to Uh to basically have a safer way of doing things. And that was happening way, way, way earlier. So I think that there was the understanding that something had to happen to your water in order to make it safe. And I imagine that leaves kind of getting into it, like they're saying in this 27, 27 BCE, that's way, way earlier. I don't know. That's a great question. I'm so curious now. I wish you hadn't have asked it because I'm deeply (laughs) thrown off. Oh no, Uh, sorry. I just, no, just like now I'm so freaking curious. 
I'm always wondering that kind of thing. It's like, did, yeah, did people really know that the water was unsafe? Because I know for a while that they just thought it was bad air. Yeah. Oh, people blaming the air for completely unrelated things is just so common. I feel like they're just like, I don't know, it's around, whatever. Um, <laughs> no, I think that people would have realized quite quickly that the water was the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, cool. I think okay. quicker than we would have assumed. But anyways. Um, and then I think there, this is my other point to that, is that I think that there was a real trend around that kind of time. And by that, I mean, like, later than water was obviously being consumed. I think... No, what you know what? Edit this whole part out. People obviously <laughs> realized that they had to do something to keep the water safe because otherwise we would have died of dehydration literally coming out of caves. Like, nobody just got lucky for thousands of fucking years. No, and there was a definite trend around like, hey, let's use all the herbs around and see what happens kind of stuff. So yes, yeah, I'm going to go with better. they realized the water needed to be dealt with first, <laughs> then the herbs. That so makes that's, sense. that's my new answer. Cool. Great. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, by the Tang period, uh, tea was widely consumed, with tea shops appearing more frequently and all classes of people are drinking this. So it's very much a social thing because we have these actual physical structures that are being erected to consume it within, which is very neat. Uh, People liking tea by itself with the bitter taste were found typically more in the South and they, like in the Northern half of China, they would predominantly be adding other stuff to it. Not necessarily just like milk and sugar, which we tend to associate with it, but just like other herbs and spices and that sort of stuff as well. Um, Taoists, which were kind of, I don't want to say like the precursor to Buddhism because that's not at all it. It's just another religion, but like a predominant kind of philosophical religion in the area. They believed that you should have your tea like clean and simple and just tea leaves boiled. Uh, They also thought that the innate flavor or taste of tea arose a sensitivity which pointed in the direction of the simple, the frugal, and the cool as the most appropriate setting for tea and, by extension, as the most fitting mode of life for the tea drinker. So I love it. We have already this kind of moralizing surrounding it, which we see developing really, really strongly in Japanese culture, and that's because it came from China. That's where those original kind of thoughts and, you know, ideals came from. Um, we have Chinese writings that depict elaborate etiquette for tea drinking during this early Chinese history, like the utensils that are necessary, the preparation, the way that everything's getting cleaned. So again, very similar to what we are seeing later in Japan, but there are kind of fundamental differences to it still. Um, Chinese Buddhist practice established quite a bit of the Japanese later Buddhist practice. The idea of this host or a figure of importance serving tea to one guest and then passing it on in some sort of a ritualized sense, that's found in both as well, but it definitely started in China. Um, There's also this idea that is found predominantly there and then passed around over again, is the idea of something that is so common and so everyday, so mundane, like making a cup of tea being elevated to a form of enlightenment which is really lovely and like the crux of it all isn't it that's the crux Um, of this whole podcast today exactly (laughs) like people are thinking let's just do something basic but make it really lovely one fun thing that i saw was that sometimes you will tap the cup of your tea with a bent finger to indicate thanks in like an informal setting this is because there's the story from the Qing dynasty q-i-n-g i think so yeah. Okay. Uh, when the Qiong emperor would travel in disguise and because he was in disguise, nobody realized he was the emperor. They're sitting around with his servants and a bunch of other people having tea. He poured tea for his servant. His servant was like, oh my God, what an honor. 
I have to show my respect somehow, but he couldn't because he didn't want to blow his cover. So he tapped the side of his tee with two bent fingers to indicate a kneeling servant, which I think is adorable, but also is not something that like is done in formal situations now. Now you just nod your head and say thank you. Uh, but it's cute anyways. And also problematic cute. because of like servitude. <laughs> yeah. But feudalism. Anyways. Exactly. Feudalism. Main main beef that we have with that. But anyways. Uh, <laughs> story is fun. <laughs> yeah, the story's fun. The way that tea is prepared can really vary depending on the situation and the social class and the means. Uh, least formal would be loose tea and boiling water in a teapot. Uh, gong fu cha, which means making tea with skill, is a popular method of preparing tea in China. It uses small... Uh, Yixin, Yixin teapots, Y-I-X-I-N-G, sorry, uh, which hold about 150 milliliters of water or tea later, the size being thought to enhance the aesthetics and to round out the taste of the tea being brewed. So brewing tea in this type of teapot can be done for a private enjoyment as well as to welcome guests. Depending on the region of China, there may be differences in the steps for brewing as well as the tools used in the process. For example, Taiwanese-style Gong Fu Cha makes use of several additional instruments, including tweezers and a tea strainer. Uh, the procedure is mostly applicable to oolong teas, but you can use it for other kinds as well. Uh-huh. So that's kind of the main, like, we have this development of this culture surrounding it. People are clearly very invested in it because of all the physical structures that are going up, all the, like, the pottery that we now see designed yeah. for it, uh, and all the writings that we have. But I would like to focus on, in Chinese culture, the tea ceremony at weddings, which I think is very lovely. Uh-huh. So the earliest written record of a tea ceremony is from the Tang Dynasty, so 618 to 907 CE. Uh, This is a ceremony that is attended by the bride, the groom, their parents, and close family, as well as the bridal party. Uh, The bridesmaids act as the attendants. They are the ones making, serving, and cleansing the tea utensils. Uh, It starts out as a way to show the loyalty and fidelity of the bride to her husband and new family. Now it's a way for the bride to show respect for, or the bride and groom to show respect for their elders and it's a way for her new family to welcome her in by, like, accepting the tea and drinking it with her. Okay, I was prepared to be annoyed once we got into, like, the, like, showing what a good wife you'll be, blue, blue, blue. But it's like, okay, no. No, it's, it, it means it so much get, more. Exactly. It's, and that's the thing, too, is, like, so much of what we're going to discuss later in the other areas, like, tea is such a gendered beverage in some ways. Mm-hmm. And, like, the making of it is very gendered. But there's so much more to it that it's so hard to just have a very like straightforward conversation there has to be nuance to it sometimes you add red dates lotus seeds and lily to the tea the first signifies luck second symbolizes the arrival of children and the chinese name for the lily flower rhymes with an expression meaning marriage longevity this is just what i read on the internet but i think that that's really adorable yeah um the bride and the groom should kneel to show respect after the ceremony the parents will offer lacy which is the red envelopes and some kind wise kind words uh and the groom's parents will offer the bride gold jewelry usually a bangle with either like a dragon or a phoenix on it which is worn immediately as a sign of like oh thank you for this gift it's like a very you know Mm -hmm. they're all just saying like we're cool with this yeah um (laughs) the ceremony must happen on the wedding day and guests must be served by their gender and say like whatever your kinship relationship so if it's your aunt you say aunt please drink the tea Mm mm-hmm there is a book, Seven Revisions, by Chinese writer Ying Long, who was alive from eight, uh, sorry, 1487 to 1566. It's a long, seemingly life. Anyways, the documents current affairs and happenings in society, and it says, The tea plant cannot be transplanted, and after transplantation, it shall not live. When a woman marries and brings tea as a part of her dowry, she we see she is loyal to one. So, again, not like 
loving the idea of like women having to stay in one place forever but like cute yeah i mean it's and it shows that it's so much more like it's all like metaphor and it's so much a part of the culture and the exactly everything like daily life yeah exactly so that's tea in china that's all the tea in china ew (laughs) um why is this episode already not called spilling the tea i mean it is now (laughs) um so now let's move to japan who Uh got the some of the ideas around tea from the chinese but really took it to another level if you just google tea ceremony the first thing that pops up is chinese or japanese and there's barely any mention of anything else so clearly they've cornered the market on it so japanese sorry but that's japan's mo with china (laughs) yeah uh anyway though tea ceremony not as problematic (laughs) or is it no i'm kidding it's fine um (laughs) it's called in japan chado which means hot water for tea and there's either an informal tea gathering or a formal tea gathering but both of these are in like the formalized ritualized gatherings extremely formal exactly so the informal is just like slightly more chill but not really (laughs) so chado is one of the three japanese arts of refinement along with flower arrangement and incense appreciation which i'm obsessed with the fact that there's arts of refinement i think that's super cool um chado is traditionally done by men which is so contrary to what we think of when we think of tea ceremonies so it was brought from China, like we said, in around the 9th century by a Buddhist monk, Echu, who is mentioned in this text, Nihon Koki, as a monk that made the emperor a cup of tea. He served it to him and he got his robe in exchange. Uh, he trained with the Tang in Chinese, or in China, sorry, and he first brought this over to the Buddhist monasteries. Was it monks that were then making it in China? Like it's monks or because you were saying with the wedding ceremony, it's like women are doing it. It's, I'm saying that these are the people who brought it over to Japan. Okay. I'm not necessarily saying that it's exclusively them. I think at this point, cause this is ninth century. Everyone would have been doing it. In like, China. So in it's, China. It's, it's a cross-cultural thing at that point. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So we get there in the ninth century. It kind of drops off for a little bit and then it picks up again and drops off. But by the 16th century, Chado had spread to the military, the courts, and the wealthy merchants. So it wasn't just something mm-hmm. that was done by religious figures, but it was done by all kind of like high-level society. So we have masters Maruta Shuko, Take No Ju, and Sen No Riku. And Riku is like quite a big deal like, in this whole thing. Riku's huge, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he helps establish, well, they all do, the basic tenets of Chado during this time and the ideal ideology that it's based on there are also figures that there's different like schools that are training you on how to do the tea ceremony so they're descendants basically from these people's teachings so you Mm -hmm. have slight different variations amongst the schools which is very interesting so i have a quote chado was a commitment of life for the sake of art and the fundamentals for the practice of chado in architecture philosophy craft flower arrangement food preparation and basic forms of the tea ceremony were developed so how nice that it's a commitment of life to the sake of art and I think that that's really kind of the main difference between at least what I can see from Chinese and Japanese tea ceremonies is like, it's very much like art for art's sake in Japan, whereas mm-hmm. in China, it seems like art for a reason and to tell a story. If that... Right. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. In the coming years, new masters are being trained. So the more people know about it, the more ritualistic it becomes and the more it's kind of codified into a very specific set of, like, rules. Uh, Mm -hmm. Originally, it is 
passed down through the men in the family. The head of the household was the one who did it. And it's inherited almost like a form of wealth, like Mm. this information. Women's participation was limited. They would not engage with it in a public way. They would support their husbands privately, like being the assistants in the home. But they wouldn't go out, train people. They wouldn't do it for like a big ceremonial purpose. Yeah. Which is rude. (laughs) It is rude. So like you would pay to go and like learn how to do yeah tea chato i guess yeah Yeah, from what i understand that's yeah um some elements of the ritual are even secretly passed down and were expressly forbidden to be shared with women so they couldn't they didn't even have all the necessary information to do this Mm, classic love (sighs) yeah (laughs) keeping it's just like and you know it's so silly it's like well they couldn't possibly handle this how could they ever pour the tea oh at this angle don't and tell the women you've got to step two steps forward, five steps back, and then you pour the tea. But like, don't. They're tiny brains. They would just step all over the damn place. And the next <laughs> thing you know, they're fucking chaos. Um. Anyways, so then you get the Meiji. Is that how I say it? Restoration? Meiji? Meiji? Sorry. Uh, we should stop doing things where I have to say words that I don't know because it's clearly embarrassing for all of us. We could not have a podcast then. <laughs> the shade but the accuracy um so anyways after the restoration chato was reimagined due to necessity the new government saw this ceremony as a way of spreading these values of loyalty and service to the emperor and so it opened up chato to women and to other social classes that were previously barred from its practice so the women were also seen as very integral to this because they're the ones that are training new generations so that's pretty nifty yeah so 1894, Enosai, who was a grandmaster, allowed women to be certified to teach. So this is a big freaking hairy deal. What year again? Sorry. 1894. Perfect. Love it. Yeah. Japan was doing great in the 1890s. Just kicking it in the dick. Um, anyways, it was mainly done by upper class women is it was one of the only acceptable ways for them to work because it didn't mm. undermine their husbands and it was something that could be done in the house. So it's kind of not a shameful thing for them to be engaging in. After World War T, after World War T, oh my god. Sorry, that's the title of this episode. Goddamn. So after World War II, we see the repopularization of Chato because it was a way to return to these really traditional values, preserving Mm. Japanese culture. And then when everybody started to have money again in the 1960s, people decided that this was a luxury with some prestige attached to it that they would like to engage with. So... It can be thought of a means of instructing women in subordinate roles and also as a way of, like, teaching them their duties for marriage and, like, Mm. keeping a household, feeding and, you know, taking care of everybody, which is definitely, I think, an accurate way to look at it in some regards, but there's also a lot more to it. Um, There's public prestige from the knowledge of this practice and the way that a woman can interact with public life. It's really, like, a chance to get out of the house, a chance to be excellent at something that I think until recently or even still was not really an option yeah and it and it is i mean even if the reasons are a bit codified but it it is a very like prestigious 100 percent, and like it's an art form like you're yeah totally so it's no small peanuts that women are doing this and they're doing it well Um, the teaching of the chato follows traditional kind of like feudal relationships you have this grandmaster a teacher and a student so very much like hierarchical Mm -hmm. 
it's more elaborately divided. So you have a grandmaster, you have high-ranking professionals, you have professionals in training, you have lectures, you have teachers, and you have students. Women are not allowed to be part of the top three tiers. So that's grandmaster, high-ranking professionals, or professionals in training. Which is rude because those are the ones making decisions for, like, these schools that are teaching them. The Mm -hmm. only way that women can enact kind of any sort of change or have any opinion in these things is if they're directly related and part of the family of the Grandmaster. So then they can have some sort of authority. Which is typical. Just, like, the only time we let women talk is when they're, like, (sighs) literally the most important dude in the room's wife. And even then it's like, oh, sweetheart, thank you so much for telling me that while you poured my cup of tea. Except for not in this situation because that would be overstepping. This also, like this hierarchical kind of organization, is mirrored in the craftsmen and the utensil dealers who are closely linked to Shadow. All of these are predominantly male and have similar patriarchal hierarchies. So women are only interacting in those roles as spouses as well. So like the person who's making the teacups and the different utensils that you need, Mm -hmm. again, they're barred from that element of it as well. Which, rude. I have another quote. Thus, in learning Chato, women are taught all the traditional arts and, as a result, are perceived by other Japanese who may or may not study Chato as intelligent, cultured, talented, and worthy of esteem. I know. Just. <laughs> I know. It's just so limited. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's very, like, pat on the head accomplishments. Totally. It's a gold star when you're a grown-up lady. Like, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. And, like, and again, like, not to diminish it as a skill and a talent as an art form, but it mm. is, like, the fact that you, you're, like, yes, like, good job, you did such a good job in this, like, middle row, and no, there's no way that you will ever be any higher. Yeah. And no, you can't have any decisions, and no, you can't do anything else. I don't know. This is hashtag glass teapots. <laughs> um. <laughs> I have a glass teapot, it's great. I mean, yeah, they are delightful. <laughs> so there's two different types of matcha tea. Now I'm going to get a little bit more into the actual kind of structure of a tea ceremony because mm-hmm. it's a little bit more elaborate than in what we've previously discussed. So two different types of matcha tea, thick or thin, and the best leaves are used for the thick. Three times as many tea leaves are required to make a thick tea, and it's shared from a communal bowl, unlike thin tea, which is served individually. So the equipment for a tea ceremony is called chadogu, so you have a chakin, which is a small rectangular white linen or hemp cloth that's used to wipe the tea bowl. You have the tea bowl itself, which is, you know, range of styles, sizes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, different styles are used for thick and thin. Shallow, which allow the tea to cool rapidly, are used in the summer, where deeper ones are used in winter. That's another thing that I think is so cool about these different ceremonies that they're doing, is that they're so, like, they're definitely changed to the specific like instance Mm, the ability mm -hmm. to react to current stimuli is very important which is crazy because it is so complex and formalized exactly complicated but it's like oh no we need this is and it's not even just like this is the summer one this is the winter one it's yeah oh it's a little bit hot out so let's use this kind of medium bowl and then we'll do it this like yeah exactly it's super neat uh you also have a tea caddy which is a small lidded container in which the powdered tea is placed for use in the tea making procedure you have a tea scoop Usually a single piece of bamboo is carved to make one of these. They can also be made of ivory or wood. Um, Let's see, a tea whisk, which, whisk, whisk, whisk. Mm -hmm. Um, So let me tell you the steps. They're extensive. So first, you enter 
You should always be a little early or on time. You shouldn't be late ever. You are to stow your extra belongings and put on fresh socks in the entrance like vestibule area. Sometimes in the entranceway there, well not sometimes, most of the time, there's going to be a hanging scroll and that's going to give hints to the theme of the day's ceremony, which is mm-hmm. nifty and adorable. Yes. Um. So then still outside of the chashitsu, which is the main area of the tea ceremony, guests have a cup of kind of hot water, kelp tea, cherry blossom tea, or barley roasted tea. When everyone has arrived and they're all prepared, they go to the roji, which is the garden outside of the main tea area, and they sit on the waiting bench. The host and the guests will silently bow to each other, and then the guests will ritually purify themselves in the stone basin, which is a tsukubai? Tsukubai? Sorry. Oh, boy. By washing their hands and their mouth, which I thought was, like, interesting. I wouldn't go to a place and then gargle, but love that for them. Mm -hmm. Also, just, like, maybe I should. Clearly, I'm a heathen. Um... (laughs) Then they're going to enter the tea house through the crawling indoor, which didn't look into more, just really enjoyed the idea of. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've got to like get on all fours. Yeah. Guests are then to sit Seiza style, which basically just means like kind of on your shins. And mm. you aren't to put your hands palm down on the floor. You kind of make a fist and that's how you move around like on your fists, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Um, they are then kind of seated in order of prestige they admire the tea items in the room the door is audibly shut when everybody's sat and ready so that the host knows to come in Mm -hmm. um then they welcome the guests the first guest asks questions about the scroll and the other items around the fire is stoked the guests are served a meal with sake and a sweet at the end then they're asked to return to the waiting area where the host sweeps replaces the scroll with a flower arrangement then there's like a sound. This is in, it's not necessarily like a gong or a chime or a bell. It's one that's predetermined in the specific ceremony. So this is one of the okay. places where we can see these differences between the schools and what they're teaching. Right. They, everybody returns. They repurify themselves. They sit back down. The host returns, ritually cleanses each utensil in a precise order using prescribed motions and then arranges them. So this mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the areas that like there's a lot of training. It kind of seems like being a ballerina or something like that where you have to mm. learn exactly how the movements go. Yeah. The host then makes a thick tea. So they serve it to the first guest who accepts it, turns it so they're not drinking from the front, has a couple of sips after they've raised it to the host in like a gesture of respect. Uh, Then they wipe the edge, pass it to the next guest. Once it's returned to the host, it's cleaned again and then it leaves the tea room. The -hmm. host adds more charcoal to the fire, shifts the ceremony to the more kind of casual portion. Once, this is how, this is the long formalized version. If you're doing the short formal, like informal version, it just starts with the thin tea. Mm -hmm. Now, during this portion with the thick tea, up until that point, the conversation is extremely formulaic. Nobody is really just making idle chit chat. It's all very much like predetermined things that they're going to say. It's like a call and response. Exactly. But also one of the neat things is how... With the scroll, if the theme is slightly different, they're going to kind of make, like, witty repartee around the theme, which I thought was just fabulous. Yeah. Like, how cute. Um, Anyways, so then the host returns after, with a smoking set, some, like, sweets, confections. They make the thin tea, maybe some cushions for everybody because they're tired at this point. Um, The host prepares the tea, and then the guests are able to converse more freely uh host is cleaning the utensils when everyone is done the guest of honor will ask the host to allow everyone to examine the utensils 
and they will be treated very carefully. Everybody's kind of kind of ooh and ah at the host's mm-hmm. belongings, basically. Uh, this is a symbol of respect to the host, which makes sense. It's kind of like, I don't know, if you came to my house and I'm like, oh, I really love these wine glasses. These are super cute. I'd be like, oh, thank you. Like, I'm clearly doing a good job as a host. Yeah. Well, and it's showing, it's like, yeah, you spent so much time and money in becoming this like artisan or I don't know, like artist. It's like, mm-hmm. let's look at your. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's cool. The guests will leave and the host will bow to them on the way out. Each action shadow, how the kettle is used, how a teacup is examined, how the tea is scooped into a cup is performed in a very specific way and may be thought of as a procedure or technique. The procedures performed in shadow are called collectively temai. So the act of performing these procedures during a chaji is called doing temai, which mm. adorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, many different styles, which are depending on the school, like I said, the season, the setting, the equipment, and countless other possible factors, which, like, again, I cannot emphasize this enough how even though this is so set in stone how you're supposed to be and, like, they train for so many years to do the same things, it's so fluid. Like, I read this quote that was really interesting about Japanese like plays and how part of what they would do is like they would if they have like a more boisterous audience one night they would slightly amend the play so that Mm -hmm. it would have music and it would have less like really lengthy dialogue or if it was like a really like sophisticated like you know I want to say erudite is that the right word yeah new audience they would have like they'd focus more on like kind of I don't know, the nitty gritty details and how one of the nice things about going to the theater isn't that it's the same every time. It's picking out the differences that the cast has done intentionally to make it more tailored. And I think mm-hmm. that that's something that we see replicated in the tea ceremonies here. Well, and I think like, yeah, I love, I love that so much about the, yeah. the, the tailoring to the crowd, but I think that your uh, analogy as like the, to the ballerina is really mm. good too, because it seems like a lot like, ballet or just dance in general like there's a set of like gesticular language like I want to say like visual language but there's like a set of movements and all of these sort of ways to move your body in like different things but then you can recombine it depending on the situation totally exactly I think that is very intelligent of you to say you started it um and then one thing that I really enjoyed reading about too I read this one article that was very much just kind of talking about kind of two little old ladies who well not little old ladies but like two ladies who've been studying with the same teacher for a very long time and they decided to go to this public tea ceremony which by the way is put on by like the tea merchants or like the big tea companies Uh out in public which leads me to my next point is chato a pyramid scheme let's discuss but also no that's probably not everything is a pyramid scheme everything's a pyramid scheme (sighs) anything in capitalism is a pyramid scheme exactly new title it is (laughs) um multi-level marketing is just more obvious about it um anyways so they would like go they'd hear that there's going to be this tea ceremony out and about in the world and they buy tickets they're like expensive ish or like more reasonable but they do get a full meal out of it so there's that they will go and they'll either go see their teacher who they've done like years and years of study with or they'll go to see somebody from a different school so they can see the differences but it's like a way for the people who are studying it who are predominantly women these days to go and kind of catch up with their friends a lot of um the articles that I read had quotes from people being like, yeah, my husband just really likes that I like get out of the house. It's like, (laughs) cool. Cool. So yes, that is the end of my little bit on Japan. So now we are going to move from this 
highly formulaic, like ritual performance. Ritual performance is kind of an oxymoron, but anyways, um, ah, I have a very interesting article that I read that did kind of define it that way. And I, I edit this out, but anyways, uh, so now we're going to China. Woo. No, no, we're going to India. Woo. So chai means tea in Indian, and the word comes from the Chinese word cha, which is so interesting because. Okay, well, legend says the the discovery of tea happened when Prince Bodhidharma went to China and he spread Buddhism and he committed to staying awake for all nine years of his mission. But by year three, he was a little tired, so he needed some energy. He plucked off a few leaves and he ate them. He told everyone, he's like, hey, have you tried this plant thing? It really seems to work. Uh, and then everyone just started drinking tea from there, which, to be honest, if that was me, I would have been tired after the first half a day. Uh, and would have just laid down and died on my walk to China. So good for this dude for sticking it out for three years. I mean, they had longer attention spans back then. I don't even know if it's my attention span. I'm just so sleepy. (laughs) Anyways, so that's one legend of how tea tea came to India. The other is that the British just brought it and showed them. Huh. Seems fun. Uh, because tea leaves have grown wild and like naturally in India for thousands of years so probably they had figured out a thing or two about it before the British got there but it does lead us to this interesting question of like how did the word because like you can tell when words are linked in language like chai versus Mm -hmm. chai very similar so it makes sense that it would come from a Chinese origin was it because that they'd interacted with Chinese tea and Chinese tea traders previously or is it because the British were using a Chinese word to describe it and it kind of came along that way to get the word that we have now there was definitely a word to describe tea uh beforehand in India but now we have chai so that's about it and I don't know where the word came from but it's weird anyways I like it it's very cool yeah you know who knows who knows not I again lackluster researcher anyway so we have this debate of where tea comes from the British say one thing We tend not to believe them because they're the British. Uh, Anyways, we do have around 1598, a Dutch traveler, John Huygen van Liechtenstein, who noted in a book that the leaves of the Assam plant were used by Indians as a vegetable eaten with garlic and oil and as a drink around the 12th century onwards. So there's that. Anytime we see tea being consumed in India, like all the articles that I read always discuss it as something that's being sold by street vendors, chai wallas. And it seems very much adorable for one. And two, like something that the family would go down in the morning and like get a cup of chai together. It would just have a pot of chai always on the stove. There would be this really like casual communal element of like something to offer your guests when they come in as like a warm, cozy, nice way of having people brought in. So the ritual element is still there because it's still something that's being done constantly with this intention of like, welcome behind it but it's certainly not as rigid as we're seeing in other cultures so that's really interesting we also see that unlike in japan and china where this idea of taking your tea clear like with nothing else in it but the tea leaves is very like that's how all the fanciest of us do it like Uh and there's so much like nonsense not to be rude about it surrounding the preparation of just like a single pot of tea in india they're just like well the british put some milk in it so i guess we'll try that too and then they just like dump milk and sugar in, and then a whole bunch of spices and are just like there you go 
I love it. Well, and it's almost like we get into our classic authenticity conversation Mm -hmm. where it's like, no, you have to have it like pure and like on its own. It's like, why? Why why can't I put milk and sugar and like cardamom and some other nice shit in there? Cinnamon and pepper. Mm -hmm. I love chai. Mm -hmm. Yeah, chai is delightful. But it does, I think, really speak to the current origins of tea drinking culture in India, which is the British, versus Mm. the origins of tea drinking culture in japan and china which is very much religious Uh and it just seems like there's this this ideological thing that's attached to this purity and then this just like we're just having a nice time attached to chai tea (laughs) not to be so snooty and rude to the chinese and japanese tea we like you all well enough too um anyways india is thought to consume and this is from 2019 837,000 tons of tea a year oh my they are the number one consumer of tea and the second largest producer. Cool. So they go in and on it. I was about to say it's interesting that they drink more than England, but their population is so much bigger. So duh. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. nothing to add to that. Good chat. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's all the information I have about tea ceremonies in these three countries. And do you have any questions at this moment? No, I love it. Cool. Let's go right into England. England. Um, England. I just need to start off with because for this research I did read uh, I, I read one article but it was like enough to just like oh, oh it's drinking of tea is the title of this article like the drinking of tea mm-hmm. and it is from oh I don't even have when this was published wow Marika good work Meh. like Old times. Like, I want to say probably the 1800s. Olden times is a fine enough definition for time periods, I think. Well, so basically the moral of this story is that it's the classic, they're replacing all the S's with F's. And it's... <sighs> it's insane. Like, Don't you mean <sighs> infane? <laughs> I do. Thank you. I'm going to read you this passage because it's like... To read it the way that it's spelled. And like, yes, I know it's a stylistic thing. But it's also like, neither the Chinese nor the natives of Japan ever youth tea before it has, there's an S there, (laughs) been kept at least a year because when fref, it (laughs) it is fed to prove narcotic and disorder the fences. Senses is spelt or looks like F E N F E S. It seems like it's the S's at the end that are not being edited in this way. Yep. It has something to do with like the, I don't know, it's like a kerning thing. It's basically, That's it's wild. It's like, I don't know. I, I was just reading it and wondering about like what will be our f's in terms of s's like centuries from now when scholars have to comb through like our ancient texts and facebook marketplace messages i mean when i was writing this particular joke i was thinking specifically of why people are gonna be like why for one year did everyone replace the c in stocks with an n (laughs) oh bless stonks Stonks. It's stonks. Yeah, love it. And it's not stylistic. It's not. (laughs) 
Or is it? Um, okay. So T, how about this lovely quote? Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> With proper spelling, because it's written more recently. T's ability to exist simultaneously in the opposing realms of luxury and necessity, foreign and domestic, enabled it to animate Britain as an imperial nation. <laughs> well, that isn't a full mouthful right there. It is. Um, the article like really went on like in depth about Britain's imperial history and like foreign policy, re China and India, mm. which we obviously don't have time for in an episode that is supposed to be mini and <laughs> is already not. Um, but I just feel like that really sums up tea in England because it's like, yeah, fancy but every day. The dichotomy is very much a part of it, I think. And it's like, it's something that we consider to be so quintessentially British, but like, absolutely isn't. <laughs> yes. Ugh. My uh, God. Like, uh, yes. So, anyway, tea first came to England around the 1650s, mm-hmm. and it was viewed more as a medicine or wonder drug than like a beverage. Everybody sees this like bitter drink with just leaves in it and is like, I don't know what to do with this. I guess it's good for us. <laughs> Yes, the first English ad for tea appeared in 1658 and quickly ga- gained popularity in coffee houses of the time, which mm. coffee houses are so cool. They're the salons of their day. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. One day we will maybe do an app. So according to the British Tea Company, by the middle of the 18th century, tea had replaced ale and gin as the drink of the masses and had become Britain's most popular beverage. Who knew? Because I also read that in the 18th century, the price of tea was so high that, like, you had to be pretty heckin' rich to afford it. Was it one of those things, though, where, like, yes, it was really expensive, but, like, people were making those sacrifices? Like, for me, I feel like if I was down to my last $5, I would spend those on a croissant, not anything more useful. Yes, and I think also, like, as we'll get into, it's more like the like tea was more than just tea like you had to have all of the tea stuff oh right okay and i think also like if you were like really wealthy and could afford it like you got the very good tea whereas you're probably just drinking like the crumbly crappy leaves that yeah yeah or there's like yes like yeah um it was so expensive like the good tea was so expensive that it was kept in a locked tea caddy in a special closet of the ladies like like the lady of the house so, like, servants wouldn't steal it. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> They're just like, don't take my tea. Wow. Uh, um, and then, of course, like, the fact that poor people also liked tea caused great distress to anyone who considered themselves upper class. Ugh. The upper class, like, British aristocracy <laughs> just being like, the poor people, they do something like us, too? Like, my how, God. How dare they? Don't they know this is fancy <laughs> just the rich ladies swooning in their corsets this is important oh my god uh so writers in the early 1750s remark with dismay <laughs> that female servants are were like asking for tea as part of their contracts really yeah so they're oh, like that's yeah so like, cool and apparently like there would be maids or something who wouldn't work for certain houses if they wouldn't be allowed like tea like as part of their like like like, I don't know, like, free tea. That's so interesting. When you say that, do you mean, like, they got, like, a bit of tea leaves to take home? Or was it just, like, we need a cup of tea on the job, bitch? 
Well, first of all, I don't think you had a home. Like, if you, like, live oh, yeah, in that house. Like, it's, like, right. all, like, this is, like, 1750. So it's, like, mm. I guess, like, as part of, like, the food that you're allowed to eat, like, they would unlock it from the tea caddy and be, like, okay, you get, like, a cup with, that like, dinner. so funny. In the vein of making fun, not making fun, being stressed about people liking tea so-called humorists would make like wife jokes about women who like tea so it's like these are the like, I don't know, like rodney dangerfield of the times so here's one that i've edited for anti-semitism oh good um, thanks <laughs> a tradesman had better trust his hand in the mouth of a lion his substance to the management of a whore his conscience to a horse cursor than his purse in the hands of his wife that's a tea drinker. That's so shady! Holy smolies! So yes, this man is making a ridiculous joke, but he's also, like, not fully untrue because, like, the price of tea, but then also the price of the, like, tea accoutrements were also very expensive. And you had to have, like, everything that went. So you had to have, like, the correct cups, the special tea caddy, the tea tray... Uh, so an example of this, as one London goldsmith wrote in 1731, quote, there's no such thing used here as a silver kettle without such stand or frame. So in other words, you couldn't just buy a kettle. You had to also have the special lamp for it and like the matching stand and like everything. Wow. And so interesting, too, because when you see like especially in Japanese, there's culture, there's so many like pieces that are necessary mm. to this. And we're seeing that echoed here. And just the idea that you can't consume a cup of tea without proper, like, I just, you can't, it's not like it's something that you could just like go into the woods and do. No. And I think, and I mean, again, like if you're the servant lady, just like who's has a cup of tea built into your salary, like that you're not this. But if you're one of those wealthier ladies who like really wants to do tea, mm -hmm. or like have tea, you have to have like, a, it's a production. It's a whole thing. Again, production. Surrounded. Production. Yeah. Uh, so yes, the first English teapot was silver and made in 1670. Mm. So that's like pretty early in the. The first English the tea. teapot though. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, and then later, porcelain ones from China became popular, and it's like the thinner the better. Like it was very elaborate. Mm. I read a very interesting article on the style of 18th century portraiture called conversation pieces, ah. which are like basically small, intimate depictions of everyday life. And in many cases, it's like families enjoying tea. <laughs> Which is like, it sounds so cute because it seems like from the outset, like they don't seem like markers of like wealth or status. Like it just seems like, yeah, it's just like a nice family, like having a cup of tea. It's very different from like, like a Louis the Fourteenth like fancy portrait. Like a man on a horse with a bunch of fur. Yeah, it's not like elaborate, like I'm wearing all of my rings and jewels for this. It's the phrase weird flex, but okay, really seems to come to mind here. It is totally a weird flex, but okay. But it was like a weird, it was not a weird flex. It was like, oh, like it was, they signify just as much prestige as formal portraits. Just, it's a different kind of style and it's a different time. They were the hipsters of their day. Yeah. And we have to remember that tea was a luxury item and leisure was a luxury item. Mm -hmm. Like the ability to have, like sit down and have tea and it's all fancy and you can just hang out. 
It's very cool. Yeah. And of course, as now we're getting into it, the consumption of tea in especially in this sort of they're calling it like the Georgian era. So like eighteenth hmm. century, like Is that because it's like King George in that era? Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah. So like late seventeen hundreds into like the eighteen hundreds. It's the consumption of tea in these richer, like upper class households was a measure of social manners and a way of displaying the proper enjoyment and appreciation of pleasure. Interesting. So is that is that ex- like by taking your tea in is it a like if you're taking it in private it's still a marker of like sophistication and class or is this exclusively like you have people over to have it and to showcase that you're doing it yeah you have people over okay. like because everything's so expensive you wouldn't just have it like every day so it's like you would only bring it out and mm. one of the quotes is you only bring it out among like quote worthy company whoa rude like it's yeah well it's it's i mean it's almost like opening like an expensive bottle of wine it's like i've been saving this like Mm. i want to share it with like big company but then it's also not that because it's also like let's have the neighbors over and then show them how good we are at being polite like it's it's that kind of same thing about like inviting someone over for a nice bottle of wine and and they're like oh just whatever i just happen to have this i'm such a good host Yes, but I think at this time, like, in particular, it becomes this very kind of, like, complicated dance of, like, it's, like, where you're complimenting someone, but you don't like them, and it's just kind of, like, weird, like, it, it's a, it's a manners thing, whereas you're showing, <laughs> you're showing off how polite you are by, like, but also not, I don't know, I can't even, I can't express it properly, because it is, like, it's so... But that's what it is, is like these intangible rituals and like intangible practices that surround the consumption of this food really demonstrate how integral this is to humanity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yes, so that's kind of the start of it. You're getting into the, your tea is expensive, everything's mm-hmm. expensive, so you're only bringing it up for good company. You want to show that you're rich and that you're able to be, le- like have leisure time and that you're doing it quote-unquote proper way and then that morphs into afternoon tea not high tea as i've been told by you yes i will get there (laughs) so afternoon tea the creation of afternoon tea as a meal or i guess an event i don't know what you call it i think both yes uh has been attributed to anna the seventh duchess of bedford in 1840 so anna who is just all of us. Uh, She got hungry (laughs) at 4 p.m. well before her fashionably late dinner at like 8.30 or 9 Mm o'clock. So she would ask for some tea and like bread, butter, maybe some cake. But she would ask it to like be brought up to her secretly in her bedroom because she was like stressed that people were going to judge her for being like having a snack. (laughs) So poor lady. It's so cute because it's like, ugh, can relate. Yeah. Ugh. If there's uh, ever a time that I don't want a snack, it's because I'm dead. (laughs) Yeah, always want a snack. Mm. Also, four o'clock is peak snack time. (laughs) Because if you don't, then you better be having dinner at four fucking (laughs) thirty. Yeah, and then I'll have a snack at eight. Yeah. That's nice, though, because then you have, like, your before bedtime, like, dessert. Yeah, and then you're not, like, as full right before bed. Mm-hmm. It's better. Yeah. You should be eating smaller dinners, bigger. She knew what was what. Yeah. And you know what? Everyone agreed because 
she wasn't judged and everyone loved it and it all caught on. I mean, obviously she didn't do it all herself. That's apocryphal, but. There was probably many a servant who is behind this invention as well. She, yes. You know what probably happened was she was just like a raging bitch at four <laughs> o'clock every day. Just like so hangry. So hangry. And her servants were like, you need to eat something. Like, just let's get you a sandwich and get you away from me. Yes. So here's the thing. It's definitely in North America. We use afternoon tea and high tea interchangeably, but that is incorrect. So afternoon tea is the fancy version with finger sandwiches and rolls and high tea actually originally referred to the late afternoon or evening meal of working class people uh, around the time of the industrial revolution. So it's actually like a heartier, like hot meal uh, in the place of supper. So it's like a little bit smaller and you have tea with it, but it's like basically for people who are too poor to have like a full like dinner. This is so interesting. I completely did not know that until you told me. I didn't know it either. And then, so apparently the name comes from the fact that they ate it in high-backed chairs. Whereas, like, afternoon tea, because you're, like, sitting in, like... Like a stuffy lounger? Yeah, or, like, a sitting room. Like, the back of the chair is, like, lower. I don't know, but, yeah, so high tea. It's not, like, high tabletops. Like, they had, like, high-standing tables that you just kind of gathered around. That's kind of what I thought of when you said high tea. I thought it had something to do with chairs. I could look it up, but I'm not going to. That's fine. So, okay. So the fancy afternoon tea. Traditionally served from about two to four. Mm -hmm. You get tea, light pastries, bread, butter, sandwiches, little cakes. Everybody knows the cucumber sandwich. Cucumber sandwich. Like all of like the little, like, like little things. Mm. It is an opportunity to visit with friends and neighbors and in the 18th and 19th centuries, especially to show off your manners and wealth. I love that it's not just your wealth, but your manners. Like, people need to see how polite and fancy you are. Yeah, I mean, that's why, like, the best scene, or one of the best scene in Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest is when the two female characters... Do you know The Importance of Being Earnest? I've read the book and I've seen the movie. I just cannot picture the scene you're talking about. So it's like the two female characters, Cecily and Gwendolyn, Mm. are, like, having tea. And they're, like, slowly ruder and ruder to each other and, like... Oh, I remember. And that it's the thing. whole like, would you like cake or bread? It's like, oh no, no one ever eats cake anymore. Like, cake is not fashionable. Like, slaps a piece of cake on, passes it to her. It's like, God, do I you take your tea with way. like milk? Like, oh no, nobody has milk anymore, just sugar. Or like, the, I think it's actually no, nobody has sugar anymore. She's like, throws a bunch of sugar. In. Like, it's Ugh. it's funny because it's absolutely not what you're supposed to do, and it's the opposite of like an afternoon tea but i also kind of feel like that is just what tea was like people were always just like being really snarky bitches to each other yeah well i i did read some things that it's like it was they were kind of critiqued as being like places of gossip like everyone's just oh okay but spreading rumors i would like to say that that isn't any place with a bunch of bitches a place that is critiqued for being gossipy also Mm. wasn't only women originally So especially as we're in those early Georgians, like the uh, the Georgian era, so early 18th century or mid 18th century, when mid 18th, like, not eighth, <laughs> mid 18th century, <laughs> um, like men would have like there would be like men, so men would also mostly be out in like the coffee houses because it's public space, but then also men would have like their teas or it would be kind of like a mixed company, but and then I think as 
as we get kind of closer into like the 19th century, 20th century, it's the men and women are becoming kind of more separated after dinner parties. Hmm. I mean, I guess they're always separate. Like the men go and like smoke and stuff. I don't, I don't remember now. I really like the cigars on a total side note. It's bad for your, you got throat cancer. Ugh. Anyways. But at, as we're getting in now, like afternoon tea was always kind of considered like a ladies thing. And it was really like a lady's ability to host a tea was considered integral to a family's claim to status. And also, as we've seen in like these different, like the Japanese tea ceremony, especially like it's a way for you to get to spend some time with other people. Like it's an, it's an opportunity for conversation. It's an opportunity to, in some senses, get out of the house. Like, I don't know when did it become, this is, like a good question I suppose when did it move from being something that was predominantly hosted in a home to being something that you predominantly went out to do because like and maybe this is just my understanding as like a tourist to somebody who doesn't live in London or England at all is I would imagine that there's there's so many places where you can go for afternoon tea I'd say like the 20th century really like I would I imagine not until like the 19 uh yeah 1900s hmm. Because, like, you got to remember, like, women didn't really, like, leave the house. That's what I'm saying. Like, interesting. <laughs> oh, so sad. And, like, stores barely existed. Like, restaurants. Like, restaurants. Like, women couldn't go to restaurants alone. Ugh. What a tragedy. Claim to status. Talking about manners. There were handbooks written on the proper tea etiquette that outlined the rules for presentation and conduct. Mm-hmm. And these rules were also to, like, tell you how to, like, have a nice tea. But also very much had the intended effect of excluding lower classes and like, I don't know, I presume minorities, but they're not even. They don't even talk about them because they're so irrelevant in their minds. Oh, how dark. (sighs) Yeah. And it was also a way of controlling the behavior of women. So as we've talked about, it confined them to the domestic sphere and prohibited any unfeminine behavior. Mm. One such rule that kind of keeps you in line is that nothing of substance should be discussed at a tea a rule that reinforced the claim that women were incapable of serious conversation these feedback loops that keep bitches down yep so here is samuel orchard beaton orchard beaton orchard beaton beaten the orchard sorry He's the writer of Etiquette for Ladies, and he writes, Let her refrain from controversy and argument on political or financial topics, as the grasp of the female mind is seldom capable of seizing or retaining. I literally want to break something hearing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's like... I can't. Anyway... There are also a lot of rules about the amount of t- about the amount of tea to be served and the time that guests should be spending at these teas. Mm. So we have in an 1888 edition of Manners and Tones. <laughs> such a stupid title. That is really bad. All right, this one's long. Okay. At small teas, the guests should arrive from a quarter past four until half past five or six o'clock. It is not usual to offer coffee. Tea only is given. To offer coffee is a foreign fashion. Slices of thin bread and butter, cake and small cakes should be given. 
Tea is placed on a small table, a silver tray being generally used for the purpose. The hostess should pour out the tea herself. When a second visitor arrives, 10 or 15 minutes after the first visitor, the first visitor should take her leave. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. It's like visiting hours. It's visiting. It absolutely is. Oh my goodness. How neat. It is. It's, it's very cool. And so it's like all of these, like, yep, yeah, you stay for one cup and then you peace. I love that. I never want to talk to anyone for more than 15 minutes except for you. <laughs> We've solved that problem. Yeah, no fucking kidding. <laughs> um, okay. So that's kind of all I've got there. And then tea in modern Britain, I couldn't find like tons. We kind of like a lot of it. We just know like tea is huge. <laughs> yes. Uh, I did learn that tea breaks have been a part of English working class people's lives for approximately 200 years. (laughs) So, like, what is that, 1820s? Like, basically, I guess, and since people have been working. That's insane. They were like, okay, we gotta unionize. We gotta really stop letting little kids work in mines. And also, we have to be able to sit down for a cuppa. But, like, yeah. I love that. That's so cute. Because it's got, like, you've got milk, sugar, caffeine. Like, it's enough, so it's, like you have like a little break in the morning and then like often like a little one in the afternoon and like you don't have to have like a lunch break because you've just had tea and it's totally fine super totally fine not a big deal at all uh would you like to hear a little bit about tea bags of course i would uh so supposedly they arose from the use of small silk tea sample bags by a new york city tea seller in like 1908 oh that's so interesting Yeah, which totally makes sense. It's like you just get a little sample and you're like, well, I'll just put this in, (laughs) I guess. Um, In the 1920s, the tea egg or tea ball was invented. So that's like the little like metal ball with the holes. It's like still in use today. Definitely. Uh, And then gauze tea bags came about in about 1935. Hmm. And then Mr. Tetley... Monsieur Tetley do tell. Monsieur Tetley. Um, I think he's American. I was going to say, I would never let the French deal with this. They do not enjoy their tea as much. Uh, Tetley set about trying to get everyone in the UK on board with tea bags, like in the 1930s, but it didn't really work. Uh, Then in the 60s, so in the 60s, 5% of tea was consumed in bags. So like, no one was drinking tea from a bag. In the 1960s? 1960, only 5% of tea was consumed using tea bags. But as of 2005, that percentage was increased to 85%. Wow. That's so crazy that it was so recent. Uh I would not have expected that. Although, again, I suppose just like the way that we do things, so, so, so different now. Industrialization is the devil. Hashtag everything changed after World War II. Not necessarily in this situation, but in most situations. All right, so jumping over. Cross the pond. Sorry. We're going to talk about yerba mate. Yerba or yerba mate, as I saw it. I don't know. I don't know. I will say yerba mate, even if it's wrong. Everybody knows what you mean. Yes. Uh, so, again, starting off with, like, just quotes everywhere. Quotes on quotes on quotes. So this is from Current Science, 1934. Mm. 
the cultural basis of foodstuffs is not widely appreciated. They affect profoundly the ideals of the people, their general outlook on life, and the events and processes of the objective world. Which, I'm sorry, but that's the theme of this podcast. Somebody write that down. That's the mission statement. Which, but actually don't, because then this same guy, like, literally the next sentence is him talking about how, like, people who just eat vegetables are, like, idealists and prone to being, like, subjugated, and then people who eat meat are, like, good at conquest and imperialism. So, mate, Mm. it's the term, are originally referred to the gourd or silver silver cup from which the plant concoction was drunk. Delicious. it is made from the leaves and shoots of the Ilex paraguayensis plant, which is indigenous to Paraguay duh, Makes sense. and southern Brazil. The earliest mention of yerba mate as a drink is in a book written by written in 19... Oh, no. 1626 <laughs> or 7-ish uh, by a Jesuit missionary in Paraguay. It's really interesting that this is actually the first recorded instance since... By the time the guy wrote about it, Mate was already, like, everywhere in South America. Like, it's not like he was just writing about one person he saw drinking. He was, like, writing about it being, like, everyone's drinking this stuff. But, like, when did the Spanish and the Portuguese get to South America? 1516. So that's, like, a full hundred years, hey? They'd been there for, like, 110 years, and, like, none of them had even, like, mentioned it. I feel like that has to do with the fact that this is something done by an indigenous population that, like... Not everything translates right away, right? Like, Oh, a thousand percent. The cultural element to it, like the fact that it's usually something done, like, and you'll discuss this further, but it's usually something done by like a group of people like sitting around together. Like there, there's obviously intimacy between those people. And as much as there definitely was intimacy between the indigenous populations of South America and the conquerors, uh, there maybe was a different kind of intimacy there that didn't involve sharing some mate. So maybe nobody told them about it. Or it did, but like kind of going back to old meat sweats over there. Uh, <laughs> it's people weren't paying attention to that food, like the importance of food and beverage. Like they were just like, oh yeah, like everyone drinks this. Like why would we write about like something that these people drink? Like we don't do it. I don't know. I just so interesting and also just like I guess it's the crazy part for me is that they were exporting so much of the stuff that they found there like that was the number one thing is that they took like all of the produce that they could find they're like fuck it let's haul it back and see what we can do and you would think that this would be something that they would be into sharing because it's like something that can be commercialized but maybe they just again they didn't really think of it as a valuable commodity i don't know it's interesting well they did later on but yeah for that first hundred years who the heck knew what was going on yeah and it wasn't like the indigenous populations were writing down about this because they were busy not dying and also had more of an oral tradition but anyways just doing their own stuff uh so according to the missionary dudes uh the leaves of the ilex were chewed by the natives but it was the missionaries who developed the drink but like that seems very fake news um there were a lot, there were, like, after that first sort of written account in, like, the, in 1626-ish, there were a lot of early attempts to popularize mate in Europe and elsewhere. Hmm. Like, and it's really interesting because yerba mate was introduced to Europe at the turn of the 17th century, roughly the same time as, like, tea, coffee, cacao. Like, it's all coming well, in the same so time. that's so interesting that it didn't make nearly as much of a dent as tea did. Yeah, or or as coffee or cocoa, like hmm. chocolate. 
so it's like I don't know like I it got overshadowed I don't know I mean there was some kind of like I mean I very much cursory read some of this because I was like mm-hmm. but I I want to just say racism probably or maybe it's like they hadn't quite developed it in a more European way because as we will see the sort of traditional way of drinking mate kind of rubbed certain Europeans the wrong way Certain European actions around that time kind of rubbed a few other people the wrong way, but I mean... Yeah, like, take a bath, motherfucker. And also just, like, stop killing people. Oh, yeah, also that. <laughs> yeah, but I love that your mind went to bath right away. That is accurate. So, how do you drink it? So, to prepare yerba mate, loose yerba powder is steeped in hot water directly in the drinking vessel. So, that's the gourd or silver cup. And then it is... Strained into your mouth through a drinking straw called a bombilla, bombilla, bombilla. Uh, both the cup and the bombilla can signify the status of the mate drinker. So poor people, indigenous people, use like bom- bamboo. While then, you could also get more expensive or like fancy silver filigreed bombillas. So, like English tea rituals, mate is traditionally consumed in a communal. I mean, not like English, like. Every single like tea all ritual. All of these tea rituals that we've seen. It's all very communal. It's social. It's it's about so much more than a beverage. So in drinking yerba mate traditionally, one, so you have your gourd mm-hmm. and then you drink it from your little bombilla. You drain the liquid from the cup and then the mate is refilled with hot water. The bombilla is wiped with a fragrant leaf. And the cup is passed along to the next person. And then basically you just keep going until the leaves don't give any more flavor. I also read somewhere that you're supposed to have the straw in one specific side of it. So that you kind of like mm-hmm. like amass the leaves on the other side. And then you kind of like move everything over. Is that correct? I don't know. Hmm. I didn't actually. I only found like a couple descriptions of like the actual like way that people drink it. Like, everything else was really going into, like, the Jesuit stuff. And, Ugh. Like, the Jesuit. Sorry. And, and, like, the medicinal power. It's like, I don't, like... Please. I feel like so much of the conversation around it, like, when I was in Argentina, Chile, whichever the two, uh, and had it, there's so much of the conversation around, like, this has so much fucking caffeine in it. Like, that was the only conversation people wanted to have. It's just like, all the caffeine. Like, it's it's fine. It's just a beverage. Yeah, Cool. Um, so yes, but despite the fact that this is just another communal tea ceremony, like a lot of, like all other tea ceremonies, the ritual of the passing around and probably the indigenous bodies that are performing it caused some difficulties for early 19th and 20th century tourists. So one guy quote, I must confess that it was unpleasant to put into my mouth the unclean tip of the pipe-like stem through which the mate drink was sucked. It's like, sir, seems like you're dealing with some other Freudian stuff in there. Yeah, I was gonna say. (laughs) Just like, sometimes a straw is just a straw. Hell yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, it's not super surprising that the many companies trying to promote the consumption of yerba mate in Europe and white North America are very quick to point out that you don't have to drink it like that. Like, don't worry. You can just steep it in a regular old teapot. Like, ugh. But fortunately, like, that hasn't 
succeeded. Like, you know, this is something that's been around forever and we're still drinking it that traditional and so way. Clearly it's so integral, like in the sense that you have, like, it feels very like something that's so part of family life too, to like mm-hmm. just pass that around, have one always going kind of have like, you either have one for yourself personally or you have one that you're sharing with your family like for a sit down kind of thing just in the same way that like a pot of chai is kind of always brewing in the background yeah totally you're just like a constant always got a mate which is and I think it is interesting that it is like that very traditional like indigenous like vestige of indigenous culture is still around especially because Paraguay and Argentina the main places where yerba mate persists have kind of long been associated with like much more of like a Europeanized Europeanization than the rest <laughs> of like, North America. What? I mean, not not Nazis. Um. So yeah, I mean, it's cool that this is a thing that still exists. But then I also did read like a thing that was like the only reason that they kept this is because it like seems quaint now that they've like wiped out all of the indigenous population but then i also read that it could be seen as a form of resistance against imperialism so i don't even know six to one half dozen the other yeah yerba mate now is enjoying a pride of place in north american health food so yay quinoa <laughs> is out yerba mate is in yeah, so shout out to our cosmopolitan lovers of authenticity, because there is nothing more authentic than drinking tea that isn't really tea out of a bespoke mug with a straw. Ugh, white people. Yeah, shout out to the time I was on the bus going to university in first year and just like a guy in like a woolen sweater and like very unwashed hair and like thin glasses. And I want to say those toe runners. Oh, toe runners. Just, like, drinking like out of the most misshapen mug and it was just like this like i mean look i didn't know what yerba mate was it just looked like a guy was like drinking too much leaves like open on the bus just the (sighs) things that people do on the bus are so they should be so limited sitting standing that's it i've done the entire list of things you should do on a bus yeah i mean you're not you shouldn't even breathe on a bus right now yeah, so literally it's illegal fight me so uh guayaki guayaki i don't know how to say this mm. it is the brand of canned yerba mate that you see everywhere the marketing slogan is to feel the good energy capitalization <sighs> It's just, like, really, like, good. I'm glad that, like, Yerba Mate is, like, doing well and people are liking it now. But it's very much, like, especially just with this, like, new agey. It's also so important with anything like this that we look at who is selling it and who is Uh creating it. Are there indigenous bodies on that team? Like, or are they the ones harvesting it in a field? Yeah, I don't know. But it does seem like it's definitely getting, like, the marketing of all of it definitely gets into that kind of, like, essentialist territory where it's, like, we're linking indigenous peoples with, like, an idea of an ancient earth, which is both, like, reductive because then you're imagining, like, it just reinforces white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So enjoy your yerba mate drinks. <laughs> yes. That's all I have for yerba mate. Wonderful. 
I tried to find research on children's tea parties, but America ruins everything and it's all just about politics. (sighs) Hashtag not the only tea party. Yeah. Hashtag not all tea parties. (laughs) (laughs) But most tea parties. No. Um, May, would you like to tell me about the best tea party you attended as a child? I feel like it was just like a nice tea party that I don't, I can't think of a best. I feel like you have the best tea party you attended as a child. Well, no, I just want to give a shout out to having tea with my grandma because she always had the fancy cups. I remember there was like a night, like the table that we sat at for like dinners and stuff. And above one end of it was like these open face uh, cupboards that had like all the fancy teacups and everything displayed. And it was like such a big deal when we got to use the fancy teacups and stuff. And I just was so tickled by that. But the best, speaking of babysitting, the best tea party I've ever attended was one with one of the kids I used to babysit, Jack, who he had like these tiny little plastic, he had two older sisters, so these were definitely theirs because gender norms. Um, And he had this like, he was playing with these cute little plastic teacups and teapots. And so he would pass me the teacup, this little plastic one, he would pretend to pour the tea in it and then you'd be careful, it's hot. Well, make sure you blow on it an hour. And he was adorable for the entire hour. It's very cute. It was super cute. I still think about how sweet that was. Anyways, but that does speak to the fact that like, one, super gendered, because I remember thinking, isn't this weird that he's into this? Which, not a very progressive thought, but whatever. And also just like little girls are constantly being shown these fancy things and like aspirational like items that they could own like it's definitely a thing that like when i'm a grown-up i will have these pieces so we're being trained from such a young age to want to buy things that are expensive because tea sets are still expensive even though they're not as expensive as they were back then but they are (sighs) and also just like showing us the role of being a good hostess that's all i got okay bye the only other thing that i had really about it is like it seems like such a trope in movies where it's, like, a little, like, girl is, like, having a tea party, and then there's, like, some kind of, like, big, like, very macho character who, like, has tea with her, and you're supposed to be, like, wow, like, a big man is having, like, tea with, like, from a tiny cup with a little girl. Like, isn't it cute that a man is able to relate to a small girl? Yeah, because that's how developed their fucking brains are. I'm sorry, I have absolutely fucking had it up to here for giving, like, men like gold stars for doing like one inch of parenting i'm yep. over it agreed cool that's the only reaction i needed ah! please continue no that was literally it um i have except for if dwayne the rock johnson has done it in a movie because i feel like he has and honestly i'm pro dwayne the rock johnson <sighs> yes he's great he's it's a delight fun. anyways continue <laughs> um tea in america that isn't tea party hmm. cursory research i did an hour before we did this podcast. Perfect. The main form of tea in America, because they're definitely more of like a coffee country, is iced tea. Well, and sweet I will tea. never. Yes, but I will never forget being a child and ordering iced tea in the States to mm-hmm. great disappointment. Although I feel like my mom did warn me. She's like, you've got to get sugar. I had literally the exact same experience. My mom was like, you're not going to like that. And I was like, but mom, I love iced tea. And she's like, yeah. And my mom's like, you have to ask for Nest tea. Oh, like you've got to like ask for like the brand. It was the hint I always got. Mm, I did not know to do that. I just stopped trying That's... after a while. Yeah, I was like, I guess I'll just have water. <laughs> Shirley Temple. Mm, um, hell yeah. 
Sweet tea, though, is a southern state's staple, and it's obviously literally just like it sounds. It's sweetened iced tea. (laughs) And they drink it all of the time, like literally in the place of water. I feel like there's always like a jug of sweet tea in the fridge. Yeah, and like when I was in Texas one time. You've been to Texas? Yeah, I went to Austin. That's, oh, that is a, that's another story. We should talk about that later. I feel like I should know this about you. Anyways, continue. It's a lot. Um, but yeah, so yeah, Austin, like they'd have like, you go in a restaurant, like a taco place. And if you wanted like water, they'd have like jugs of like water and then also like a jug of sweet tea. And I was like, I can just get like a bunch of iced tea, like for free. Really? It's free? Yes. It's like water. Literally like That's water. so wild. One commenter on the internet blog that I read about this, just like my like, what is the history of sweet tea in America? Mm-hmm. And she said that her grandma called sweet tea table wine of the South. Table wine of the South. Oh, that's funny. Yes. Great. I love it. Um, very brief history. So 1800s iced teas in the States were mostly used in alcoholic punches. Mm. So it's like you'd have like just like a punch with, well, okay, here's a recipe. This is 1839 Mm. from the Kentucky Housewife Cookbook. So this is to make tea punch. Love it. Make a pint and a half of very strong tea in the usual manner. What is the usual manner? Just a fuck ton of sugar in there? No, no, just make tea. So just make tea. Strain. Actually, I did make that face, but it's like, no, that's like, yeah, just Just make make tea. tea. Okay, gotcha. Uh, Strain it and pour it boiling hot on one pound and a quarter of loaf sugar. Oh my goodness. That's two and a half cups. Uh, And... Half a pint of rich, sweet cream. Oh so you're, this is just like cream. This is tea. And then stir in gradually a bottle of claret or champagne. What? You may heat it to the boiling point and serve it so, or you may send it round entirely cold in glass cups. That sounds horrible. I want to make this. Me too. Can we do this? Like, yeah. So it's just like very strong tea, a fuck ton of sugar, <laughs> cream, and red wine. Wow. Or champagne. Like, like the fact that they are comparing them like they're the same thing is like, whatever, just put it in there. I don't know. Just, just like put in whatever you got. Wild. <sighs> yep. I'm into that though. I mean, we'll see. Sounds rody. Uh, then normal iced tea became more of a thing in 1904 at the St. Louis World's Fair. St. Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis. Um, because it was so dang hot. And so everyone was just like, I want an iced tea. <laughs> Makes sense. There Makes you go. Sense. And now Americans are just being complete and other heathens and making tea by microwaving a cup of water and then putting tea bags in and they should be taken to trial for that's an act of aggression war crimes <laughs> honestly that is a war crime against britain it i'm is. surprised I mean, I... that the british let that stand they should have been like wait a minute we're reinvading you due to this disrespect wait, i'm sorry but is that what world war t is about Ew. <laughs> oh my god oh my god 
Um, that's horrifying. I can't believe it. Well, anyways, that was the history of, you know, tea ceremonies. And we hope and, you liked it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we definitely could have covered much more. But we, I mean, for even though that's... This is for two hours! I mean, at least 45 minutes of that is you talking about babysitting. Yes, I spent a full 45 <laughs> minutes discussing babysitting. But don't um, cut it, that has to stay. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just, I feel like I I was just in my, like, last research, like, finding, I was like, oh, yeah, like, Russia has a huge tea history that, like, we did, like, did you samovar. Know they, they totally, uh, will have their tea with jam in it, which I think is super interesting. Yeah, raspberry jam. Delicious. Um, but yes, we did barely scratch the surface, which is, you know, it is what it is. It's a massive field, like, we could have spent, that's the thing, the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know. Yeah. And how exciting is that, that there's more to learn and discover? It is. But how exciting it is that, like, even though these are all such, like, different places and all over the, like, everything, it's just like, yeah, tea is just a very communal beverage. And it's nice to just, like, share a hot cup of tea with friends and neighbors and enemies. Yes. So go share a cup of tea. Go share this podcast with, again, your friends, your enemies. Ideally not, you know, within six feet of each other. But. Yeah, not right now. But you can share us on social media, which is uh, Pantry, Pantry Staples, Staples Pod. <laughs> Pantry Staples Pod on Instagram. Where you can go see our gift guide. It's in the saved stories section. And there you will get some hot takes on what to get for Christmas. Yeah. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe because we're nice ladies. Or are we? Um, all right, this has been the world's longest outro. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Have a lovely day. Goodbye. Bye.